Hello, and welcome to Season 4 of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. As has been the case in all previous seasons, I'm your host, Kevin Weber, from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Cold and snowy, icy Grand Rapids, Michigan. Not looking like baseball weather out there, but hopefully soon enough it will be upon us. I'm sorry for the length of time between my previous episode and this one. But as we know, life gets in the way sometimes of the things that we enjoy doing. Um, I don't mind being a full-time high school teacher, but uh, that takes up a lot of time from from uh, from October up until now. And um, I got a little break here. I know that it's the new year. I've been thinking about doing this episode for over a month and had some ideas down. I got a few emails from some listeners out there that I will be addressing in different segments and uh, of course, this is a good time to do it because it's the time of year that we're registering for all of our umpiring and starting to take the tests, whether that be NCAA tests or high school tests and uh, the new rule changes and things like that. So this is a good time. Assignments are starting to come out. I know I've done a lot of my assigning for sub-varsity baseball, and uh, I've gotten a good number of assignments myself through you know college baseball and, and high school baseball. So I'm sure some of you out there too know kind of what you might be working a little bit next year and probably are a little excited or maybe even a little apprehensive about it if you're a little bit new to it. So in this uh, particular episode, uh, I've got three listener emails that I'm going to do segments on, one by Scott Ordway, one by Robert Fobian, and one by Dave David Emerling. And uh, you'll kind of hear the emails that they send in to me and the things that I'll discuss. We'll get those knocked out. To kind of start things up, I'm going to go with some of the changes that are happening in college and high school baseball. So NCAA changes, followed by federation changes uh, will be the order of our segments. And I'll go through the different uh, emails, which I think have some interesting information and some some things you might want to ponder as well. And uh, that will take up a good amount of our time today. I think that we've got an action-packed podcast for you to get you going in the new year and thinking about baseball. I know tonight I'm kind of excited because it's the first lesson of mastering an umpire, umpiring, mastering an umpiring, which um, NCAA D2 coordinator Scott Taylor is putting on via Zoom. I've sent out some different links and such uh, through the Facebook page, which if you uh, haven't joined that, you should do the, you know, do that and join the the Hammer and Umpire Podcast Facebook page because I always post some things here and there on that that concern umpiring. So tonight, 9 o'clock Eastern, um, Scott's going to be doing a Zoom, and I've met Scott on several occasions and at camps and such and I think it should be very interesting it's for all levels of baseball if you you know it's free and I think anybody out there if you want to check it out you should do so just look there on the Facebook page or just search it uh, Masters and Umpiring on Facebook and you'll be able to find it through Scott Taylor all right so hopefully you guys are staying warm out there you're ready to dig into some rule books and get things going for baseball and uh, get ready for this next season so sit back for another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. Well, it's that time of year for 
rules tests and rules changes, be uh, it NCAA baseball or um, Federation baseball as well. And those are becoming pretty quickly. Uh, we've already had for the NCAA the um, preseason um, clinic that was out. And now, as of the recording of this episode, uh, we have the NCAA test out there as well. So um, it's not a rules change year for the NCAA, but there are a few things that they did make, make some adjustments to, some mechanics things as well. And uh, I'm going to use this segment to go over some of those things. One of the more significant changes is the added language for 2022 that reads, um, to permit the use of an exclusively one-way electronic communication device from the dugout to the field for the purpose of relaying the pitch or play call. The use of an in-ear communication device shall be limited to the defensive position of catcher. There are two additional provisions to this, which uh, must also be noted for this technology communication with players. A team may use an electronic display board to show numbers or letters to any players on the field. However, two-way communication devices are still not allowed nor are players on the field allowed the ability to receive data from a location other than the dugout. So there's how it reads. I um I like this rule. I think it's good. Um, I got a little experience with it doing a, a fall scrimmage for Michigan State, uh, and both the catchers were using the earpieces and getting their signals, and it seemed to work pretty seamlessly. Um... I'm for anything that allows the game to move a little bit quicker. And there definitely have been times over the last few years, especially once they've gone to these um, cards, you know, and have the wristband thing and such things like that, or the catcher has it and he's got to get it and look at it and relay it. And it can really start slowing the pace of the game down. Um, I don't know, like some people act like it's, if, if you didn't do that or something, or just let the catchers call it, then it would cut 25 minutes off the game. I'd love to believe that. I don't know if it's really that much. I'm sure it's a few minutes. Um, but to me, it's more about the pace as well. And if you do have good pace in a ball game, then usually they play a little bit quicker. And, and that, that in turn can probably cut several minutes off a baseball game. So I like that. Um, it's a more high-tech thing. You know, I'm sure you're going to see a lot of D1 schools using it and some of the D2 and D3s and JUCOs and such and NAIA, NAIA as well that maybe have the funding to, to do this kind of thing because, you know, you got to pay for it. So, um, But then again, they probably spent a lot of money on those cards that they wear on their, on their you know, wristband things and all that stuff. Yeah, so I think that's a, a pretty reasonable... Uh, change and I think it's something that could be uh, beneficial um, like anything when they put it in uh, we'll see how it goes and they might make some adjustments to it in the future so those of you that worked um, college baseball last year know that there were several changes because of COVID-19 uh, some rule waivers and such and some of these those have been you know gone away with and others they kind of kept like for example they are not allowing the pitcher to use a damp rag to apply moisture to his hand. Um, 
that was, I think, more of a cold weather kind of thing, too, because you couldn't go to your mouth. Um, so they got rid of that. Teams are still allowed to expand the dugout area to a designated area on the bleachers, you know, um, for uniform people. Um, so that's good because um, we still are dealing with some COVID stuff. So we still have that in place. Um, they have the, in the event of an unusual situation like an injury illness or travel difficulties, a game may be started and completed with one umpire. That would be crazy, but if it needed to be, I guess we could do that. You don't have to stop it. I've had that experience before in the Juco game where my partner uh, was hurt in the first inning and, you know, ended up breaking his wrist cause it, from a foul ball. And uh, I had to go get my gear back on and work uh, at least a, it was two or three innings before I had someone come in and work the bases with me. So, you know, it's doable but not ideal. They have, uh, by conference rule or mutual agreement, prior to the start of the game, Extra innings may be started with a runner on second. <clears throat> that um, I think that's a good thing. You don't always need the crazy long games. I know the traditionalists out there aren't going to like that, and sometimes I'm that way too. But when I'm working a baseball game, uh, I'd like it to end quicker. <laughs> okay, so I'm all right with that. The player starting the extra inning at second base is a player um, or his substitute in the batting order immediately before the first batter of the inning so i've had experience with this too in the summer collegiate league that i work out here in michigan and you know the western part of michigan here and uh that happened on a couple of occasions and you know th that was i thought it worked fine um it's not not traditional baseball but uh you know they play a lot of games and uh i think it's good to get them over as quickly as possible if they go extra frames and putting the guy in second it, it doesn't I guess, uh, you know, you didn't have to get the guy over there, but I think it's okay. It's reasonable. It's better than, like, you know, the way they do shootouts sometimes in hockey. I think it's a little bit better. It's not like we're having a home run hitting contest or something here. But the biggest change, I think, that they, they kept for this year, which I think overall is a good thing, is that a head coach may only come to the midpoint of the respective foul line and not enter the dirt circle around home plate to maintain proper physical distancing when coming onto the field to ask a question about a play. So they can go to the 45-foot line on either respective foul line or outside the dirt circle. That's what it was last year. They're keeping that, and that might be something that is here to stay. We'll see. Um, I don't know why they would really want to go back on that, but that is um, something that's still in place. I think that it does um, allow people to calm down a little bit if there's some kind of heated play thing, you know, that gets everybody all fired up. Uh, so not saying you're not going to have ejections or something, but, you know, I mentioned it before. I mentioned it in other parts of this particular podcast, too, that, um, you know, I don't always think it's the greatest thing. I know it's been the tradition for 130 years or something for coaches to run out on the field and get in the umpire's face and everything. But uh, that wasn't really right back in, you know, 1922, and I don't think it's necessarily the right thing in 2022 either. Um, so I think that that's a good change overall. Traditionalists out there, you know, we like to, to have the dust-ups and everything, and a lot of umpires look forward to those things too. I understand that. But I think moving forward, it's probably for the best. So for the upcoming season, the uh, NCAA mechanics uh, just one change for NCAA baseball, and it concerns three-man mechanics. So they changed the, the CCA manual, um, the collegiate 
Commissioners Association, that's what that is. Anyway, they opted for one slight mechanics change as opposed to some major overhauls when it comes to mechanics. Uh, we'll see what happens next year, I guess. A new optional mechanic and three-man mechanics allows U3 to return to third base and take responsibility for all plays on the batter runner after going out on an uncaught fly ball between the left fielder and the foul line. U3 should only return or cover uh, responsibility on the batter runner if U3 can return prior to the batter runner acquiring second base. So you don't want to be doing it when the guys, you know, about where the shortstop normally would be playing or something like that, right? On any trouble ball, U3 might have, and, and they go out on, they should stay out, you know, to officiate it properly. Of course, you don't come back on that. But if it's more of a routine thing, the guy's just kind of moving toward the line, and you went out on a more of a fair foul catch, no catch kind of thing, but it, it wasn't like a tricky catch. Then if you can get there before he gets to second base, um, then go back. I think that's a good change. So what were the factors supporting this? So on any batted ball to the outfield in U3's coverage area, U1 will already be coming into the infield to take the batter runner to second and possibly third base, right? So he's already doing his thing. And U1, um, accepting responsibility for the batter runner in the second base, is, of course, an approved mechanic. U3 can return to third base and maximize umpire coverage at second and third base whenever possible. So if you got two guys there, obviously that's better than having U1 in the middle of the field and having basically everything, okay? So with U3 in position at third, U1 is relieved from having to take the batter runner all the way to third base, which can be a little tricky and to get a good you know angle and spot for that. Uh, coverage on the play reverts from one umpire to, uh, and two bases to two umpires and one base. Uh, far more preferable, of course. Um, and this, of course, eliminates the potential of U1 overcommitting toward third base and then being out of position for a play back on the batter runner at second base um, after he you know, initially rounds it and everything. So I definitely think this is a good change, um, one that needs to be pre-gamed. Um, definitely all this year um, and maybe also in the future but you know so that umpires know that that might be a mechanic that might get used uh, with nobody on base okay so I think that's a good change and uh, something to take a look at if you are a college baseball umpire who works some three-man out there so those are the primary changes for NCAA umpiring this coming season uh, of course there's a few other things that they you know, mention here and there, or, you know, making sure you know the DH rule properly. There's some changes there recently in the 22nd pitch clock uh, as well. Uh, but if you get those new ones I just mentioned down, you should be good to go for this upcoming season. Until next year when they open up the rule book, it might have a bunch of changes, and who knows what's going to happen with the mechanics manual, but uh, do the best you can with it for this coming season. The National Federation for High School Baseball Rules Committee, or the Fed, as I refer to them, also made a few um, adjustments and changes and points of emphasis for this coming season, 2022. 
uh, which you should be aware of if you are working high school baseball, which I know a lot of you out there are doing. So one of the changes was with pitching. It's you know rule 611. The change uh, has to do with the pitcher taking a sign, which, as I mentioned in the NCAA uh, segment there on some of their changes, you know, has become a bit of an issue over the last few years with uh, the way that they're getting the signs in. And um, they even allowed um, pitchers in NCAA to take the sign without being on the pitcher's plate. I think that's still in effect as well. But they don't like that for um, Federation because it kind of messes up the timing of the game, which I can understand. So they made some changes to the way that you can do that. You know, obviously they have you know posters and signs and wristbands and all those kind of things. Um, but now what they're doing is uh, they're going to allow the offensive team to be prepared for the start of the action, so that we don't get quick pitches and such. So six one one has been changed to include wording that while defensive teams are legally allowed to relay signs and the new accepted manners that we've kind of mentioned, the pitcher must still take or simulate taking his sign from the catcher with his pivot foot in contact with the pitcher's plate. This requirement is in place whether the pitcher is working out of the windup or the set position as established in 612 and 613. So they say by simulating taking a sign, the playing action is allowed to start in the same fashion as it always has, eliminating the possibility of a pitcher illegally delivering a quick pitch to an unsuspecting hitter or a base runner having the opportunity to lead off from their base. Okay, you know, I mean, I guess this solves that problem. It's a little strange that if you have the sign that you have to like act like you're getting the sign. I don't know how well that's going to work, but we'll see. But if they're there and they, I guess you just have to manage the game the best you can and make sure that nobody's quick pitching, which is what you should have been doing to begin with. I mean, I don't care when, where they got the sign. You, you shouldn't allow that because it isn't just the hitter. I mean, he's the primary person that's getting ripped off here. It is base runners too, you know, where they can get a lead if they're going to try to steal a base or something like that. Nonetheless, whether you like it or not, that is the new rule, and that's the way that you'll have to try to enforce it and make sure that we give the opportunity to the offensive team to be ready. Another point of emphasis is going to be on excessive celebration. So they say spontaneous in-the-moment celebrations of good plays have now evolved into more choreographed celebrations that include props and players being assigned specific roles leading to activity that can be best described as one-upmanship or showboating. Coaches should be the first in line to in preventing this type of behavior from occurring. However, if they are unwilling or unable to manage the emotions of their players or the celebrations, umpires have existing rules that provide warnings, possible restrictions, and ejections, and should be uh, willing to use them as necessary. So, Stuff coming from the dugouts is definitely an issue in all levels of baseball, from summer league stuff all the way up through, you know, collegiate baseball, higher level collegiate baseball. You'll see that stuff on TV and everything if you're watching higher level baseball. So nipping that stuff in the in the bud early on uh, in the game, 
Um, if you have, you know, three or four umpires and you've got a wing umpire, they definitely should be helping to take care of their particular dugout. Um, but everybody is involved with that. Obviously, the home plate umpire, he's got his responsibilities, but he can definitely see what's going on in some of those dugouts. So you got to make sure you take care of the, that kind of business and not let that escalate into something that uh, can get a little violent. You know, somebody throwing at somebody or potential altercation of some sort. All right. Proper use of equipment. That's another point of emphasis this year. Players should not be modifying or misusing equipment in a way it was not meant to be used as designed by equipment manufacturers. Doing so creates questions about how the equipment will perform and also creates liability issues. This is kind of, I, I, to me, it's more uh, like batting helmets, okay, like where they try to add their own kind of uh, chin cheek protector thing on there or something like that. Um, they need to have those things done properly. Sitting on buckets, particularly for coaches and stuff, uh, this is a point of emphasis, which is definitely a problem I have seen for years. You, you know, definitely even into the collegiate level, but we're talking high school here. Coaches, players, substitutes, and other bench personnel are not allowed by rule to have the dugout to leave the dugout during a live ball for any unauthorized purpose. This includes sitting outside the dugout on a bucket or stool. So please do me the favor. Um, as a person that tries to police that the best that I can, do it as well. Because if everybody does it, everybody in your area does it, then it won't be as big an issue. But if there's only like, you know, if you've got 100 umpires working in your area and only 20 of them police the buckets, then they're going to have a hard time. All right? Don't be the guy that makes it tough on everybody else. Another point of emphasis is lodgeball procedure. A baseball that remains on the playing field but has become wedged, stuck, lost, or unreachable is defined to be a lodged ball. If the ball impacts something, stops abruptly, and does not fall back or roll immediately, it is considered lodged. There are existing Fed rules to deal with a batted thrown or pitch ball that enters a player's uniform, catcher's equipment, or umpire's equipment. So we're not talking the same thing here. However, if a ball becomes stuck in a player's glove, it remains in play with the glove slash ball combination being treated as a live ball. So make sure you're aware of what you know lodge ball situations and the different things. You know it's different if it's pitched, thrown, uh, batted, and such. Okay. And then the final point of emphasis for this year is sportsmanship. Chance, intentional distractions, and loud noises, natural or artificial, directed at the opponent prior to pitching, hitting, or fielding is not good sportsmanship and should not be accepted. As with excessive celebrations, coaches should be the first in line to curb this behavior, and if they're unable to do so, the umpires have tools spelled out in the rulebook to address this kind of action. Again, more bench jockeying kind of stuff. I mean, I guess technically the excessive celebration is not bench jockeying, but in an indirect way it is. So those are things that um, you need to take care of. Sometimes you don't want to do that because, you know, that uh, that's potential conflict. And a lot of you out there might try to avoid that whenever possible, which is in general a good thing. But if they're directing things in a negative way at the other team, particularly the pitcher, but it could be anybody, pitcher or hitter, then you need to get rid of that stuff 
and take care of business out there so that your game will run smoothly and uh, you won't have other issues down the road because it will you know it's like you're planting the seed for other things to happen later on if you don't uh, take care of it early and right when it happens so those are the major changes for or and points of emphasis for federation for this year nothing too extraordinary but uh, some stuff that you should be aware of if you work high school baseball got an email from Scott Ordway, a listener out in California, who has written to me on a few occasions, and I always appreciate his emails. And he said, Hi, Kevin. We are starting our Umpire Association meetings out here in Sacramento, and I'm pumped up. There are a few questions I have that I'd like to hear you break down. So he's got three of them. First, how do you handle those borderline batter interference situations? Uh, when it is obvious, that seems easy to call. It seems rather tricky when you are not quite sure if the batter impeded with the catcher is throwing down a second. Do you have any anecdotes regarding this? Second, or number two here, what advice do you have on learning how to really identify the low and or outside corner strike? Uh, those pitches are the hardest, it seems. Three, I like when you share stories, so I was wondering if you could talk about when you worked your first higher-level college games and if you felt a palpable difference. So all very good questions for sure. Let's talk about number two uh, first. What advice do you have on learning how to really identify the low end or outside corner strike? Those pitches are the hardest, it seems. No doubt about it, man. Those are tough ones to get. And uh, those are the ones that start making somebody a good ball strike umpire. If you can get those consistently, certainly not be getting them down at the shins or something like that. Um, so to me, the, the biggest help in being able to get those and get them consistently is uh, the catcher. All right, good catchers. Um, you know, when a catcher is uh, able to stick it a little bit there, you know, and get his thumb underneath the ball, that's around that uh, the hollow of the knee, uh, which is you know in the general area of the bottom of the strike zone. There, uh, that's when you can get that. They don't have to like you know stick it perfectly, but they have to. They can't be pushing the ball down into the ground. Um, sometimes, especially the lower the level you go, as you guys know out there, you will get catchers that make strikes look like balls. And um, okay, I know if you're working a a fifteen to one game in the second inning or something like that, and it's a lower level kind of thing, and it is a strike, and the guy makes it look like a ball, then you're probably going to get those. Yeah, you got to do that. But if it's a competitive game and the players have some kind of skill, then you can't be rewarding that, you know, when guys are just, you know, drilling it into the ground. Um, so you've got to look for those opportunities for the catcher to give you those um, those balls that they they get their keep their thumb under it, keep it a, a, um, looking good. It's going to look good from either dugout, and, you know, and they're going to think that's right around that spot. And then you got to get it every time. So um, it's really the you know th that's seeing the ball in and uh, seeing where the catcher is catching it and having that good timing and knowing okay that's going to look like a strike and I think I got it there around the knees there or it's, or it's pretty dang close and you're going to get those. All right. 
um, the corners and stuff, um, you know, catchers nowadays, it seems like they, they like to move and shift in and out all over the place. Some of them are too close to the, uh, to the plate, so they'll block certain areas off. So you got to, you know, maneuver yourself the best you can to get the best, you know, uh, look that you can on, on balls. Um, when they're reaching and stuff, sometimes it's hard to get those outside, uh, pitches, um, it's tough. You don't want to go, and I, I know I've gone too wide at times, you know, and uh, particularly on lefties um, because we'd like to think that we set up exactly the same if we're working the slot uh, on righties or lefties, but that's not always the case. Um, you just got to, I don't know, you got to hone in there and make sure your head height's good and uh, not go too far and try to be aware of where that, um, you know, the gutter is between you know, the batter's box line and the plate. I know sometimes that batter's box line ends up being gone, but we know it's about three inches there. So we definitely, uh, if we get it there just inside the gutter, probably a little nick of the ball is going to get the uh, corner in some fashion or another, but we can't be going out there too far. Fortunately, they don't see that so well from the dugouts. So um, that's why guys kind of get away with that. But they're going to go back and start barking about it, that's for sure. But uh, they can see the height of that low strike. So that's where you've got to make sure the catcher is making it look good. And sometimes you've got to have a little conversation with the catcher and let them know that you got to give me a good look on that. And, um, you know, you're not trying to coach them or anything, of course. But let them know that you want to get as many strikes as you can. I mean, they, they seem to think we don't. Okay. But we, we like strikes, right? Um, and make sure that he gets that thumb under it. The higher levels you work out there. Um, you know that you're more likely to have that happen for you, right? So that's a good question. That's something that just, you know, you just got to call a lot of balls and strikes. You got to call it at all kinds of different levels and work your way up. Um, there's, you know, guys sometimes want to move too quickly through their levels that they're they're starting at, uh, but you, you got to have that repetition. And uh, obviously some guys are better than others at calling balls and strikes and, and catch on quicker, but uh, you got to make sure that, you get the, the time in, the work in there, so that you are consistently calling that same pitch, right? And if it, it and you know what it will look like eventually as they do it, right? And especially for that particular game. And then if it's a, an inch or two low, it's a ball. But then they bring it back up, you get it. I mean, that's, that's where you really make your mark with coaches and players and stuff because you're consistent that way. All right, your first question on here was how do you handle those borderline better interference situations when it's obvious that seems easy to call which you know that's certainly true uh it seems rather tricky when you are not quite sure if the batter impeded with the catchers throwing down a second of course this could be third base as well right but usually it's second uh, do you have any anecdotes regarding this um well um here's the big thing if you make this call you're probably going to be getting it right because you're you know you're going to be 100 percent. you're not going to just you know guess on this and, and hope you get it right you know you probably nailed it but the chances are very good that the a coach is coming out on you because he's going to disagree and that's always tough because you know you got it right okay remember on this play um it's just impeding it doesn't mean there has to be contact you know the the batter doesn't have to come across and bump into the catcher on his throw down a second or something like that to get that kind of interference if he uh just steps over the plate enough and, and the catcher's got to avoid him 
or make some kind of off-balance funky throw or something like that to whatever base he's throwing to, that's enough to get that. It's not called as much as it probably should be. Uh, you, you know, if you watch a lot of amateur games, um, you know, college levels on down, um, it probably should be called a little bit more. Guys don't go out there and get that. Some guys don't get it because they're scared and, and they and they don't want to deal with the ramifications of it. But if you're becoming a good umpire, you make the right call and you deal with it afterward. Um, the last time I made this call, I had an ejection. Um, it was in a college game, D3 college game, and uh, it was, you know, uh, there was two outs, okay, so... We had, uh, you know, it's a, a straight steal down the second base. Batter impeded the catcher. I got that. Um, he didn't throw him out. We got the batter out there and, you know, ended the inning. And, of course, the uh, the coach was coaching third base and going back to the first base dugout. And he came across and he asked a question about it. And uh, he said, what, did he make any contact? And he, I'm like, he doesn't have to make contact. And then he starts yelling at me and telling me that, you know, he's got to make contact and this and that. And uh, which, of course, he's wrong about that. And then, you know, he started to make it personal, talking about how uh, myself and my partner were just terrible all day and blah, 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 and making it all personal. So he, had, he, he got a shorter, shorter day there and got to go back to the bus or whatever. So, yeah, that's kind of the way it ends. So, you know, if you make that call, just be ready. I mean, be professional about it, but know that you're probably going to have an issue and uh, explain yourself and explain that um, he impeded the catcher, I mean, you know, that's fine to use that kind of uh, rule book terminology in that situation, okay? Um, don't be afraid to get it, all right? Um, but know that something's going to come from it. Third thing you had, um, you said you like when I share stories and stuff. I appreciate that. You could talk about when you worked your first um, higher-level college games and if you felt a palpable difference. Um so, you know, I, I guess you're maybe talking like uh, Division One kind of stuff, right? <sighs> yes, there definitely is a difference, okay? But, um, you know, if you work in, um, you know, even JUCO, D3, D2, stuff like that, man, there's some, there's some great ballplayers at those levels that can throw it just as hard or hit it just as far as the guys that are playing Division One. Maybe they don't do it as consistently. Maybe they didn't have the grades. That's some of the other reasons why. So I wouldn't say that the athletes always are so superior. I mean, they have more excellent athletes out there. Um, my first series that I had, I had a max series uh, last year, and I thought I would be very nervous or something for it. Um, but I, I wasn't. And maybe it's because all the people that have helped prepare me for that moment to get to that had done such a heck of a job. And I just felt like, hey, I, I can do this and I know you know what's going on and I'm just going to take it one play at a time. And I didn't really have a lot of nervousness. Even in my first D1 plate job, I, I wasn't particularly nervous. Um, a few weeks after that, I got another D1 plate job and I was kind of like, you know, on a, on a non-con and, and it was you know, I was kind of like the non-kind of little crew chief there and did my thing. It wasn't like a big deal, but I was pretty solid on that too. You know, I just, of course, when you, know, when you get out there and the catcher's not throwing it down the third um, on, a, on a strikeout or whatever, he's, you know, whipping it like a, like a, you know, like a rocket down to the shortstop. Then, you know, you know, you're dealing with a little bit different athlete and such. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's it's baseball, right? So I wasn't particularly nervous about it. Um, you know, 
the thing that gets you a little bit more, sometimes you're treated a little bit better. You know, you got a nicer place to change. They might get you some food or something like that. You're staying in a hotel. That's pretty cool, you know, because you don't always get to do those kind of things. You're in a different city. You're not just driving from your house to the game and then you drove back home. You're kind of there. And I was, you know, you're there for a couple of days or something like that. Um, or a couple nights at least, maybe three days worth of stuff. So that's kind of the, um, the you know, palpable difference for sure when you're dealing with those kind of things. But the baseball, you know, it's just, um, you know, you got to be on your toes and, and doing the best that you can with what how you've been trained. And you just hope, hope that things, I mean, when I did it, of course, I'm hoping nothing gets screwed up. I want it to be very smooth. You want it to be very smooth no matter what game you're working. I don't care if you're working just a... Uh, you know, middle of the week summer league game somewhere. You don't want any problems. I don't look for problems. I, mean, I know there's a few guys out there that try to. It seems like try to be a big shot or something. But um, I just want to get through unscathed. You know, um, that's always the thing. Do do my job. Not be noticed for doing something stupid. Um, but noticed hopefully by my partners for doing a solid job, and get the heck out of there. I mean, that's really what we're trying to do. So, yeah, there's a difference, but. I hope that as everybody else gets to move up to different levels, you I, I feel like if you if you don't feel real nervous and you're just kind of taking it as it comes, then it's the right time for you to do that. Because I remember wanting to get to certain levels uh, a few years ago, and I think oh I can do this and that, and and being so excited about the possibilities of those things. And um, it didn't happen at those points, which is good because you don't really want to be overexcited about it. You just want it's, it's a it's a job, you know. I mean, you can look back at it later and be proud of it or whatever it is you want to be about it. But at the time, it's just you're doing the job and you're doing the job the best that you can. That's really the important thing. Um, you know, like I always say, I think I probably said it on the show before. When you're old and and you can't umpire anymore or, you know, I can't do a whole lot. And hopefully you're an old, old person. You can, you're sitting around in your chair watching TV or something. You can think about all the things that maybe you accomplished as an official um, and look back at it. But while you're doing it, you just got to um, kind of keep moving on, right? I always figure, you know, I'm not getting any younger out here. I still have some goals that I want to accomplish before I hang it all up. And um, then, I, you know, when, when I do, then I can look back and... and think about those things a little bit more intently I guess so hopefully that answers your question there um you'll know when you're ready to go right when you're at your current level and you feel like I have this handled I can pretty much handle most anything I throw at me at this particular level then you're ready to move on to the next one and you just kind of keep going it's tough nowadays to do that um especially the younger you are you know I've got a you know, I teach high school kids, and I've got a teenager at home and everything. And people want uh, instant things all the time. But you, you have to pay your dues. Uh, you really do in umpiring. Because if you get moved up and you're not ready, you're going to get eaten up, and then you'll never be back. And you certainly don't want that to happen to you. Okay? So hopefully that answers uh, your questions there, Scott. I appreciate your emails as always. And um, thanks for writing in to me once again. I got an email from Robert Phobian, another longtime listener. He had a couple of unique situations that he wrote to me about in his email that I'm going to uh, share with you and tell you what I think and wonder what you guys think out there as well. 
So the first one, he's got a 16U fall ball game. Um, you know, Federation rules, two-man crew. So he's got the bases loaded and two outs. <clears throat> doesn't re- He doesn't remember the score, and the team on the, at the plate was behind. So for what that's worth. With my partner in C, so he's obviously got the plate, we have the ball hit on the ground hard down the first baseline. R3 got a great jump on contact and scored easily. Initially, on contact, I moved to the first baseline extended. But F2, my catcher, steps into my view, and I had to work up the line toward first base and around F2 to view the fair foul. First baseman makes a diving play towards the line and gloves the ball in fair territory. I point the ball fair. He gets to his feet and fires a bullet to the catcher who fails to make the catch. The ball gets past him and is trickling toward dead ball territory, gravel area to the side of the dugout, and stops short. I hear commotion at third base, and when I turn and look, um, R2 is halfway down the base path to home. Pitcher is moving to the plate to cover. The catcher flips the ball to the pitcher, and the tag is made on R2's foot as he slides headfirst. I point low to the ground and come up loud. He's out. Tags on, tag on the foot. And that's the end of the inning. After everything's settled, the manager for the team on offense asks for time. I grant time, and he asks me if either of us have obstruction on his runner by the third baseman as his runner rounded third. Now, I know that in two-man, the plate umpire has all tags and touches at third base, so that's my call. I call my partner over. We discuss it briefly. Neither of us saw obstruction, so we allowed the out at the plate to stand, and the game proceeded without further incident, which is good. <laughs> okay, so um, it's it, hey, man, I'll give the, the uh, coach there some props for not continuing because he was probably standing right there and maybe saw some contact. And there probably was, you know. Uh, so he said, uh, Kevin, I replayed this play in my mind many times that night before going to bed. Hey, man, Robert, I've been there too. When there's some weird thing like that, you just, it sticks with you, at least for a day, it seems like, right? As I said, that's my call as plain umpire. My partner and I had other responsibilities, fair foul, catch, no catch, plays with the ball and plays without the ball. And an umpire cannot make a call on something they didn't see. You are 100% right. If you didn't see the obstruction, you certainly can't call it. <laughs> okay. Um, like you're doing here, you are wondering, what could I maybe done to have had a chance to see it if it did happen? Because you weren't even probably looking at that, right? What do I need to do differently uh, here to get this correct and see all the possibilities during a play or situation like this? So I'm sure when you had that overthrow. So this is I'm trying to picture in my mind here, Robert, exactly where you were. You were uh, first baseline extent trying to see it. Catcher's in your way. So you move up, and I believe you move up ahead of the catcher. Like you're kind of like past the left-hand, left-handed batter's box, I, I suppose. Is that? I, I'm thinking that's where you're at. And... Um, to be able to see the fair foul, which is important. Um, work up 
towards the line and around F2 to view the fair foul. So um, the catcher, I assume, is standing like, you know, right in front of the plate. So you're right on the line, just a little bit up the first baseline. All right. So then you have this. He throws home, whips it by him. And uh, you are probably following the overthrow and making sure it's not going out of play. That's tough, man, because you had to probably get back almost third baseline extended. I would hope, anyway, you're moving that direction. Um, that's really what you should be trying to do, I suppose, is you know get back third baseline extended and move toward, uh, I assume it's that third base dugout there where there was some dead ball territory, so that you're somewhere in between there and get a nice wide angle so you can see if the ball goes out of play and you are trying to take a peek there at what's going on over at third and anticipating a potential play at the plate there. Of course, you got to get back there and try to get your angle as well. Um, but getting up that first baseline, man, I don't know. I mean, you got to see that. Oh, boy. That's tough, man, if he's in your way there. Um... You know, in two-man, it seems like you just got to try to get your angle, take a, a read step or something like that a little bit. That's tough. Man, you must be pretty quick to be able to get up there in front of the catcher. Because if I'm, man, I'm going to be point of the plate, I'm probably just taking a read step left or right, probably more left into fair territory to try to get a look there. I don't think I want to get in front of that catcher because I know I got bases loaded and I got a potential play there. I want to stay back and be able to get back to the point of the plate and then make my adjustment for a, like you know the wedge and a call at the plate as soon as I can. So I think that the the thing here is you know you, you must be athletic, man, be able to jump up there that quickly. <laughs> okay, so maybe that's detrimental to you. I don't know, but uh, um, you, you had to like kind of play it back you know i guess that's the thing with two man you got to have that kind of wide angle view more often than not you can't just jump up there because if you're working three or four man then you got a you got an umpire over that way that can be you know another guy over there that can be paying attention to that stuff a little bit more especially in four man right um that's it it's an easy call to miss man especially if it was just a little bit of contact they kind of bumped into each other or something like that um so I don't, I don't blame you guys for, for missing that for sure. But I'm thinking if you didn't jump in front of him and you tried to get the best angle you could to get that fair foul without being in front of the catcher, because by being in front of the catcher there, that puts you in a, a, a very detrimental spot for any throwback. You know, like let's say that the ball didn't get by. Where were you? I'm wondering where you were when the ball got by the catcher. Were you still like in that lefty batter's box there? Did you get back to point of the plate and try to adjust for that play? Because, um, you know, you're probably still going to have a swipe, I guess, on there. We don't really know. Coming from first base there, though you could have a block play, I guess, if it's a bad throw or something. So um, I think that the, the biggest thing I'm coming up with here is that jumping ahead of the catcher maybe wasn't the best thing. And I'm impressed you did it on a hard hit ball because that ball is going to get there fairly quickly. Um, and that kind of put you a little bit out of position and didn't let you um, allow yourself to have an angle to maybe potentially see any kind of obstruction at third base. Um, we're looking for touches down there, but on plays like that, I mean, okay, did you see him touch third base? Because for all we know, he missed it, right? 
Well, we're, I mean, it's too mad. I mean, come on. You know, we're assuming that the kid's coming around second and he touched that. I mean, you know, the, the other coach could have come out, hey, did you see him touch third base? I want to appeal that, <laughs> right? I mean, we could have all kinds of stuff like that. You do the best you can with those things, but um, maybe you don't see it on that kind of crazy play. So that's understandable. And I guess the coach probably knew that, and that's why he didn't like keep going with it maybe from what you said. Interesting play, though. Tough one for sure. Um I don't blame you guys for not seeing that, um, but that's what I got as far as something that you might try to think about. So, I, I like when I have plays like that, I try to think, and that's the way I kind of go through it. Where could I have been? Okay, I want to be in so-and-so place. How could I have been there? How could I have anticipated that better? And then, you know, if that similar thing happens again, you try to do it, and you hope you don't mess it up again, I guess, right? All right, good question on that one. Your next one you had, you had two of them, another 16-new fall ball game, fed two-man crew. You got two outs, runners on second and third, and now you're in the field. So you're in C, and your partner's on the plate, of course. I sure hope so. The ball's hit hard on the ground to the second baseman. You do a three-step drop as the ball goes by you. That's quite a few stats, man. you got to be an athlete. <laughs> Okay, I hear my partner say, that's interference. And the second baseman throws home, trying to get the you know runner from third. Um, and then you stay chest to ball on the throw, and you see the catcher lying on the ground. The throw skitters away to the backstop, and the runner on third scores. At this point, my partner calls time and motions the manager, coaching at third base, and myself over. And my partner says to the manager, coach, I have follow-through interference by the batter on the catcher. This is a rule unique to Fed rules. Batter's out. Uh, that's the third out of the inning, and the runner does not score. The manager looks utterly bewildered, and we resume the game without further incident. Well, it, you, know, you definitely got that right. It's a unique thing for Fed, for sure. Um, and then you said, Kevin, as I'm sure you're aware of the Fed rule, uh, citation here is 735C. So you guys can look that up if you'd like to. Which penalizes a batter who's followed through interference with the catcher's uh, with the catcher's ability to retire a base runner. Now we commonly call this because uh, the catcher receives the pitch, takes a hit from the batter's follow through as he's trying to back pick or throw out a stealing runner. But in our case, we have the catcher knocked down and away from the plate. He's on the ground and is unable to retire the base runner. And you say, listeners may also be interested in knowing follow-through interference is unique to Fed rules and is different from backswing interference. That's more of the NCAA type thing as well. Um, with backswing interference, the batter typically touches the F2 or his mitt with his bat accidentally. And he is, uh, as he's setting up in the batter's box, you know, it's just like before a play really happens. Uh, by rule, the umpire is called time. We just reset with no penalties, all right, which is a good rule. I mean, that's the way it kind of should be. Anyway, what do you have on this play, Kevin? Did we interpret the rule properly? Do you have anything mechanically or verbally we could have done differently and or better with the manager? I don't know why he called both you and the manager over. I would have just talked to my partner and then go talk. I mean, you call him manager. I'm going to call him the coach or whatever. But I'm going to talk to my partner first. Seeing what you, I mean, I'm going to come out, hey, you know, this is what I've got. 
Did you have something different? Okay, I'm going to go tell him what's going on here. And then I go tell him. I'd like to converse with my partner first, okay? Because I don't want to, especially if it's a guy I don't work with very much, I don't want to, like, call my partner. I'm working a play. I call you, the, the partner over that I haven't worked with, and the coach, and I say, this is what I have. And then maybe my partner uh, contradicts me or something. I mean, that's a mess, okay? So I want to make sure that uh, when we talk to the coach, we both are on the same page. Or if there's multiple umpires, everybody's on the same page, right? Anyway, so I think that's, I don't know. I mean, I guess you can do it whatever way you want, but I don't really like that very much. Um, okay, I think you got interference here. What, I mean, this is a unique thing, but he interfered with the catcher's ability to make a play. So, I mean, you know, there's got to be a penalty there. So... I think I like the way you guys interpreted this, and I think it was a good call. I mean, it's about fair play and everything. So um, he did interfere with him and, and didn't allow him to uh, be in the position to make a play at the plate, right? Because he's laying on the ground because he knocked him down with a bat, okay? So um, I don't know if it's, you know, he's saying that it is backswing interference, which technically I guess it is because he did do that, but it's just interference. I mean, more than anything, you can call it backswing or whatever. He interfered with his ability to make a play, okay? So I think that was a good call, and I do like that. But other than, you know, him calling both the coach and you over at the same time, um, other than that, I, I kind of like the way you guys handled it. Anyway, as always, thank you, Robert. Uh, good questions and scenarios, very unique, and thanks for sharing. I appreciate that, and um, hopefully that I gave you a little bit of information as far as what I think about it, and um, certainly anybody else out there, if you guys have any additional things you'd like to add in, let me know, and, and I'll definitely add it in on the next episode. Again, email from David Emerlin, a veteran umpire from Tennessee. And uh, we had a little email discussion about three-man fly ball tag-up situations that I talked about in my previous episode. So that was um, a good conversation. And he also mentioned in our um, email correspondence about um, runners on first and second and two-man tag-up situations, you know, double tag-up situations. Um, and the communication, I mean, I, I guess the, the gist of our um, communique was about communicating with your partners uh, verbally and uh, visually. I mean, both of them kind of play into that. And the visually part is that, you know, we have to read each other better. Um, that is like a, a next step for a lot of guys, especially you less experienced guys out there, is uh, first being uh, vocal out there and letting people know what you got or what they have, you know, um, and talking to your partners, you're a team out there and also, um, slowing down and reading what your partners are doing so that you can adjust and be in the right spots. And uh, especially if there is some kind of, um, mess up of some sort, right? So we see that with first and second, because we know first and second, two man, right? We, we know that the plate umpire is supposed to uh, come up and get that safe out there at third base but if there's a ball hit down the right field line they've got fair foul catch no catch right so they've got to get on the line there and be able to read that and then that that base man the base umpire he's got everything so you've got to be loud and letting him know that uh, of course if you're a base guy man you got to see that you should see your partner going up the line and you know you can be yelling back i got everything you're good okay 
Um, and of course, uh, one of the common things that people they'll be uh, they'll yell to their partner, you know, Bob, I'm on the line or whatever the guy's name is. Um, but uh, David was talking about how he usually does yell, "I'm on the line," but now he starts yelling, "I'm on the line." You've got the bases, you know, because some guys just don't seem to always get that or something. Like you're gonna call that fair foul gets no catch and then book across the diamond there and get the safe out of third or something that's not happening so um yeah you, you know you pregame all that stuff of course but uh you know we got to get better at it. and that's what makes you a partner that people want to work with is that they you're you're easy to work with if you communicate well you know no matter what system you're working two three four whatever it is um people like working with you because they know where you're going to be and that you you know what you're doing and it's um, clear what's happening out there. Obviously, they also like guys that can handle situations and handle coaches and players uh, and be in control of a game. That's important too, and that's what makes people want to work with you. But as you're coming through, especially the lower the level it is, um, it, you know they want somebody that's easy to work with. You know, and and um, in some ways, kind of makes them better, right? And makes them more aware of things. Um, that's what, that's the kind of guy you want to be out there on the field. Um, but that takes confidence. You know, you're not going to be yelling where people are going to be or where you're at and everything if you don't know where you're supposed to be, or um, if you're unsure of things. But sometimes you just got to start doing that. If you go to umpire camps and stuff, if you're the person communicating out there and um, making sure things are going well, I'm not saying being bossy or something, but you're, you know, showing that confidence and uh, being a leader and everything and making it easier on your partners and all that kind of stuff, that really um, gets you graded up for sure um, when you're at umpire camps doing that, when they see that stuff out there. The communication is one of those things that differentiates umpires, you know, the safe outs and the Balls and strikes, there's not always a whole lot of difference there. Um, but knowing mechanics and uh, being a, a great communicator, um, those are things that can start separating guys. So, so those are some things to think about and to work on um, in your next season. Okay. So uh, David also mentioned a couple of other things. Um, he talked about uh, he'd be interested in a discussion in my perspective on how an umpire should handle a coach who's coming out to discuss a play that he disagrees with. Where do you stand? Uh, what should your posture be? What kind of de-escalating techniques do you use if the coach is a little hot? Now, all coaches are yelling and screaming. Some make calm, reasoned, sometimes flawed arguments. And that's definitely true. Um, David mentions a few very good things that I agree with and some things I've been taught as well and obviously that he's been taught. Um, you know, you don't walk very far toward the coach. Uh, this is a little difficult now, especially in NCAA, you know, college baseball now where we're supposed to meet people at the 45 line and they, you know, that's the, uh, you know, the way it was last year and they are continuing that this year. So now as umpires, we frequently have to walk toward the coach and meet him there so walk there not too fast but not too slow and um, at a reasonable pace like you're in control of things to get there you know 
I kind of made that mistake where I was trying to like kind of hustle over to the 45 and one of my um, evaluators, you know, and the signers, college signers are there. He's telling me to do this. Like, don't jog over there. Yeah, so don't do that. I made that mistake. And he's right, okay? So um, obviously uh, if he, he does come out to you, you're in B or C on a steel plate and he's trying to come out there by the pitcher's mound, Tell them to go back to the 45. That's one way they control that situation nowadays. Um, a lot of high schools are doing that stuff too, and I think that's good. I, I think it is. And I know baseball is that thing where you can call time, the guy can come out there. You can't do that basketball. You can't call time and go out to center court and argue with the, the referees, you know, on the basketball court. Or, you know, in hockey, they don't, you know, head coach doesn't jump over the boards and go under the ice and start arguing or something like that. Baseball, we've allowed that to happen for 100 well over 100 years now. So I think it's all right. I think that sometimes it's gotten ridiculous. I know it's old school stuff, and I understand that, and I like some of that too, but I think it's okay that he's just got to come to the sideline there. You know, it makes things a little more reasonable. and I think that that might be a good thing down the road here, okay? Anyway, um, yeah, you don't, you don't want to have the conversation where you want to be when the conversation ends. So if you're the plate umpire, you don't want to be standing like pretty much behind point of the plate where you're going to kind of end up when you're trying to get the game going. You know, have the conversation outside of the dirt circle. You're supposed to do that anyway. And then you can walk back to your spot when you feel like the conversation is over. That is definitely a good thing to do. He mentions, let him talk first. Don't interrupt and be patient. You got to do that. That's That might be number one, okay? And obviously good posture, um, not, you know, looking intimidating, maybe your hands behind your back or at your side, um, that, that kind of stuff, paying good attention, eye contact. Those things are all very important too. But let him talk first because half the time, man, they don't even know what they're arguing about. They just don't like whatever happened. And they're just out there and they hadn't really even thought about what they were going to say, all right? I had that kind of situation. I, I think I mentioned it in one of the other episodes, but I'll say it again if I hadn't. It was a summer league um, game this past summer, um, summer collegiate thing, and I, you know, I can't remember. There was a play at first base, a close play or something like that, bang bang play that went the the opposite of the what the coach wanted, and um, I think he had called his guy out and he thought he was safe. So I was working the bases. So I had to come all the way from A all the way down to the 45 on the third baseline because that's where his dugout was. I walked over there in a reasonable pace, got there, and I said, what do you got? You know, I looked at him. I stopped, and I'm looking at him. I didn't say, what do you got at first? I said, you know, I look at him. He doesn't say anything. I'm like, do you have a question? And he's like, well, I, you know, I thought he was safe. I'm like, well, I I had the throw beating him there. He's like, oh. he doesn't say anything. I'm like, okay, if we don't have anything else, I guess we're done. And then I turned around and I started walking back to my spot. And as I'm walking back, he's like, well, I'm not done yet. Well, if you don't have a question, we're we're done. I'm done now. Okay. And I just kind of walked away there. I mean, I wasn't trying to be a jerk, but I'm, what am I going to do? Just stand there until you think of another question or something like that? You have plenty of time to think of it. Okay. I don't know. I mean, he just wants to argue something. So um, let him talk first. And if he kind of, he lost his opportunity to continue any kind of argument because he didn't even know what he was going to say. And he had probably like 15 seconds to figure it out. All right. So um, 
let them talk first. Sometimes they don't even talk about what you think they're going to talk about. Um, they, they're talking about something else. Like you think that he's going to come out and ask you, you know, that, you know, if he was, uh, if he missed it, you know, if he, um, missed it, he missed a tag or he didn't tag him or I thought he, you know, beat it there or this or that. And he's like, Hey, was he off the base? And then you're like, Oh, that's another thing. No, I had him on the base. Oh, okay. And then this conversation is over. It's not even what you thought it was going to be. So let him talk first. Otherwise you just dig yourself a hole potentially. And you don't want that to happen. Um, yeah, make sure they feel like you're listening to them. That's the biggest thing. They want you to, okay, if you, just kind of put yourself in their spot. You go out there, you want to ask a question, you want the guy to really, you know, you want this umpire to listen to you, answer you honestly, and uh, when you walk away, you hopefully feel like at least he heard you, and um, you feel confident that he did the best that he could. That, that's what you want. You don't want some guy to come out there and be a jerk to you. Now, if you come out there and you start being a jerk to the umpire, then he has a right to kind of shut you down. I mean, that's what I figure. I mean, you don't have a right to be a jerk. I mean, we can't do that nowadays. But you don't have a you have a right to not take anything from the guy if he's just going to come out there and be a jerk about it. Just shut that thing down and, and get the game going again, you know, if he's just trying to one-up you or something like that. So that's kind of the way I look at it. Things have changed with COVID, you know, with this coming to the sidelines. Um, things have changed with uh, instant replay as we get it, you know, as it trickles down to different levels. Even like, you know, lower level D1 has it. Some of, you know, even a few D2 schools might have those possibilities as we get closer and closer to that. And we'll see how, I mean, it could definitely be down D2, D3 pretty soon here. So that stuff, of course, uh, if you have that, that de-escalates things pretty easily as well. And uh, handle yourself professionally. So good questions there, David, and good comments as always on the emails and such that you send in to me. I appreciate it. So there it is, finally, a new episode of the Hammer and Umpire podcast. New for the new year, 2022. Hope you guys enjoyed it and it made you think about a few things concerning umpiring and uh, get you going and excited to, you know, eventually start the new season in just a few short weeks. If you uh, haven't figured it out, you should probably start contacting your local high schools or colleges and seeing if you can get in there and see some pitches and stuff. It's not always the same, of course, uh, seeing pitches in a cage or inside a gymnasium or something like that, but it's better than not seeing any pitches at all before you step out onto a baseball field once the weather turns for the better for us in the cold weather climates. So I wanted to make sure you do that. Um, there might be a new place out there to check out. Um, just try to find out who the head coaches are and contact them or the athletic department, and uh, usually they're very happy to have you come and call some pitches. You can work with some of the catchers. Um, it kind of changes things up for them as well, you know, because it's the same old, same old sometimes when they're in there hitting, catching, pitching, this and that, seeing the same faces. And when you throw some umpires in there, it kind of makes it a little bit more real and they like that stuff, especially the catchers like it because frequently they're the ones in the cages calling balls and strikes and people are like getting irritated with them because they probably call too many strikes, but that's okay, right? I'm hoping in the near future, after he gets back from Florida on the Windlestick camp, uh, I can get David Hedges. He's a local umpire that uh, works some games 
that I assign sometimes in the summer and also some high school games as well. Anyway, he's um, he decided, even though he's a little bit farther on in age and stuff, uh, in his 50s, to go down and do the pro umpiring camp and learn everything he can and and come back and be the best umpire he can here. And, you know, I, I don't know all his goals and stuff. I assume he's, you know, going to try to make it to a state final here or maybe work some college baseball as well and um, just, you know, learn everything that he can about it. And uh, he, he talked to um, some local guys that had gone down there before and um, we've got some guys here that, of course, have worked pro ball. And he decided that he wanted to try to give it a go. So he and his wife went down there, and they're down there right now. Um, so I saw him on a Zoom meeting the other day, and he was texting me. And, and I want to get him on the show when he gets back and just hear all about his experience, especially as somebody that isn't necessarily going down there to get a job in minor league baseball. I guess you never know. I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens, right? But he's just trying to get better. And like personally, I mean, I think that's great. I'd love to do that too. You know, after I retire from teaching, uh, I might do that. Um, I've definitely thought about it before. I think that'd be a great experience, and and you could learn a lot, and um, it could be beneficial for whatever uh, amateur baseball that you umpire. Because if you've done that, um, assigners certainly take that into consideration, and it could definitely um, help you down the road, even if you don't get it like a you know minor league job which a lot of guys don't most people don't right but you gained all that knowledge and experience so that is invaluable for sure anyway i hope you guys are recovered from the holiday season and you're ready to be focused on baseball and i will try to get back onto my monthly schedule at least uh, to get a podcast out at least once a month sometimes so- sooner or more if i can but I think once a month is more reasonable, uh, and I, again, apologize for the delay between this episode and my previous ones. So, anyway, with that, you guys hang in there, and as I always say, keep calling strikes. <laughs>